Good morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg here on our Facebook page for the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association with Dr. Harry Lever. We're going to be talking today about septal reduction therapy. It is septal reduction September here at the HCMA. So we're going to be diving into that conversation in just a few moments. I do have a few announcements I'd like to make before we get started today. And today is September 24th, 2021. It's about 11.05 a.m. on the East Coast. Uh, at 2.30 Eastern time today, I will be meeting uh, back here on Facebook with Dr. Uh, Fatty Malik from Cytokinetics to discuss the clinical trial results from Redwood HCM which is a clinical trial looking at another myosin inhibitor. And um, they will be um, talking about the results from that very, very Im impressive study. So I hope you join us for that in just a few moments. Um, I'm going to uh, also talk to you about the HCM International Summit. This is a medical education program and it is available for patients to participate in as well. And registration is open at hcmsummit.org. You can find the link on the HCMA website at 4hcm.org. Um, additionally, I want to let you all know that we're finally ready to launch our legislative initiatives. And that we're going to be um, really working at the state level to improve the well-child examination process. And you are all invited to register for online training October 6th and 7th where we will walk you through all of the tools that we have created to help you change laws in your state to ensure that the undiagnosed have an opportunity to be diagnosed. And on that note, I am going to pivot over to Dr. Lever and I am going to say, Harry, how complicated is HCM when it comes to making a decision it's time for septal reduction? Not, not, not that difficult long as you know what you're doing. What should a patient have in their arsenal to make a decision? Are there particular tests that should be done to help them make the decision that their gradient is significant enough? Well, uh, we um, probably in terms of making a decision about surgery, in terms of whether you should do it or not, the uh, stress echocardiogram is extraordinarily important because it tells us what your exercise tolerance is and what your gradient is with exercise. And uh, that's, that's what you, that in terms of making a decision about surgery is what you need to know. It also will tell you what your blood pressure response is to exercise. People that get a high gradient could drop their blood pressure. Um, and so, and then again, with the exercise, we know how what your heart rate does, how, how long you can exercise for, and what your symptoms are. So it's, it, that's probably the most important test to make a decision if you're at the point of needing surgery. The test results will show the gradient has gone up beyond 50 millimeters of mercury typically, but what kind of symptoms should patients be looking for to get, to get you know, relief from? Well, I mean, the, the, the common symptoms are uh, shortness of breath, chest pain, and dizziness. And uh, those, those are the really the common ones. And certainly when, when people are, if they get dizziness is a very concerning one, because that means that you're dropping your blood pressure. It means that the gradient is contributing to doing that. And that's, that's really important to know that. So typically, I would see shortness of breath, um, chest pressure, mm -hmm. dizziness, exercise intolerance as being the core symptoms that somebody can look to be resolved with septal reduction therapy. Right. I think it's critical that we talk about the big question, is septal reduction therapy a cure for HCM? Uh, I would say that it makes it makes the symptoms a lot better. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't, it's hard to say that we cure the disease, we, we make you feel better, but that the, it's, it's not, it's symptomatic relief. It's not necessarily, we're not curing the disease. And it is 
critically important for patients who have myectomy to continue their HCM care after their sur surgery or, or alcohol septal ablation, correct? Right. Okay. I, I bring this up early in the conversation because what has been happening, you know, HCMA has been here for 25 years now. And some people that maybe 15, 20 years ago had their myectomies, they drift away from the HCMA because they're feeling well. And then they come back years later saying, oh, I, my symptoms are back. We're dealing with the obstruction at the time. Symptoms change when you have diastolic dysfunction. So I just want people to understand this is not a cure we're talking about. This is something to assist you in how you feel day to day and to improve your daily quality of life. Um, but you do have to definitely stay in touch with your HCM program and your specialists, um, maybe not as frequently as when you're dealing with the evaluation and the surgery, but you, it's really important to stay in touch. So there are two options for managing gradients at this point that are invasive procedures. Um, let's first talk about alcohol septal ablation and why is it really important to understand somebody's anatomy and where the obstruction is and understand what their heart looks like before we choose a septal reduction therapy? Well, um, alcohol will only remove so much muscle. And if you have a very thick septum, suppose that it's 30 millimeters, the chances of alcohol taking enough muscle away to reduce it enough when it's 30 is just, it's just not gonna work. So, you know, it's, we, when we look at alcohol septal ablation, we're looking at somewhere between 20 to 25 millimeters. If it's in that range, you have a reasonable chance of of having, having it work. But at the same time, you also have to, not only do you have to look at the septum, you have to look at the mitral valve and what, what are the leaflets like? Are they elongated um, um, or are they in some other way damaged? Are they calcified? Is there, is there something else wrong with that mitral valve that, that the alcohol won't take care of? If you're going for alcohol septal ablation, everything else has to be Right. That means there can be nothing wrong with the leaflets. Uh, the mitral annulus sh shouldn't be significantly calcified. Papillary muscles have to be lined up normally. Again, all you're able to do with alcohol is reduce the septal thickness. And again, it can't by, be by an excessive amount. So it's sort of in a narrow range that we can expect that the alcohol will work. Is age a determining factor? Well, we would, if we're going to do an alcohol septal ablation, we're tending to do it more on elderly people who we think that the risk of surgery may be higher. So we might tend to do the alcohol in somebody that's older as long as everything else lines up in terms of the thickness and so on. So older patients with comorbidities and the proper anatomy may benefit more from alcohol ablation because of less complications and less invasive procedures. Right. There's a catheter-based procedure. One other thing the, one other thing is we gotta know what your coronary arteries are. If you've got significant coronary artery disease, that's another problem. Yeah, you won't be able to do the alcohol. And your septal perforators sort of have to be lined up in the right place to, to get the right bit of muscle out of there. So all that has to be known before you. The other thing, there's one other thing to realize that if we do an alcohol septal ablation on you, we're gonna damage what we call the right bundle of the electrical system of your heart. So you'll get a right bundle branch block. What does it that Means that the electrical system that feeds the right side of the heart will be damaged by the alcohol. If on the other hand, you go into this procedure with a left bundle branch block. You have that to start with, and we know that you're gonna get a right bundle branch block uh, with the alcohol. That means that left is already knocked out. We're gonna knock out the right, and that means you're gonna need a permanent pacemaker, more than likely. So that's, that's another thing you have to consider. And, you know, uh, 
you don't want to get into the situation where you go to the cath lab with the left bundle and then you give the alcohol and suddenly you get the right bundle branch block and you need that pacemaker put in right away. So you might, in some cases, we've taken the, the option of actually putting in the pacemaker before we, before we um, um, do, a, do the alcohol procedure. It doesn't happen very often, but you got to keep that in the back of your mind. So starting off with alcohol septal ablation, proper candidates must have the appropriate anatomy, not too much hypertrophy. The valve has to be, the mitral valve has to be in good condition. We can't get into the mid cavity or the apex. Right. We right. can't fix papillary muscles and realign them. So the anatomy evaluation is critically important. Can you walk the listeners through how the actual procedure is done? What, what is a catheter-based procedure? Well, it, it's basically uh, the uh, um, catheter is placed from the femoral artery going, going up into the uh, aorta, and then we cannulate the, what we call the, uh, we go into the left anterior descending coronary artery, and, and then from there, it's taken down a branch called a septal perforator. And what's done is a contrast agent is injected so we can make sure where exactly that alcohol will go when we put in the alcohol. That We first put in a, 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 an agent that you can look at the arteries so then it'll lighten up the, where, where the, the, the alcohol will go uh, and be, before you do the whole procedure. And that way, you know exactly which portion of the heart will be removed. So what does alcohol do? And alcohol kills the muscle. Does it happen it, instantly or does it take time it, to absorb? It, it, it can take, you, you will get pain pretty instantly. It will, in some cases, the effect on the, uh, the muscle will be such that the muscle will not contract properly for a short time, but it doesn't necessarily shrink it right away. Most of the time it doesn't. So it may take a number of you know, days to, to weeks till it actually shrinks. It doesn't just happen right away. So uh, we may see an instant, relatively quick, reduction in the gradient, sort of like shock to the muscle, but then that may not last and it may come back in a few minutes, few hours. And so then we have to continually watch the echo to see what happens over time. It's not something that's absolutely instantaneous. That the, that the, in some cases for yeah, that. Effect. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so somebody's asked an interesting question and I'm just gonna address it now um, because there's some confusion as to what do you see? So with a cardiac catheterization, there is no visualization of the actual heart from the catheter point of view. They're using fluoroscopy to see what's happening inside the heart and they can see where the catheter is and they can see where the alcohol is going, but what else can they see through fluoroscopy? Or well, what we, 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 we do really depend on looking at what the echo looks like. So we wanna see the, the set systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve acutely. You may see that go away where the mitral valve suddenly doesn't hit the septum. Okay, so we've discussed alcohol septal ablation. Candidates tend to be older, have the appropriate anatomy, is a catheter-based procedure where the catheter is placed into the inside the heart and into the septal wall through the septal perforator. Alcohol is injected, it stuns, and then it slowly regresses the wall back so that it will relieve the outflow tract obstruction. Okay, so that what would you say are the numbers uh, at the Cleveland Clinic? How many myectomies are done per year and how many alcohol septal ablations at your septum? I would I would say we probably, pro uh, in terms of surgery, we're doing close to 200 cases and the alcohol, maybe 
a dozen. It's not a large number. I don't know the, right now I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's, it's not, it's many more operations than there are. Uh, so typically 800 myectomies. I'm sorry, you, you guys do typically 220 right. myectomies per year. 200, about 200, 200, 200. And alcohol septoblations? About a dozen. About a dozen. Oh, yeah. Under 20. Yeah. Okay. So that's ablation, alcohol, ASA, alcohol septoablation, percutaneous alcohol septoablation. It has a couple different names. Um, but now let's go to the gold standard. And gold standard means it's the chosen therapy when all other items are considered. So what, why myectomy? What is a myectomy? Well, we actually remove a piece of the muscle. Uh, it, usually it's in the, the upper portion of the septum, but we've now had num a number of cases where we can actually go in deeper into the muscle and go down into what we call, and have mid, mid, where there's what we call mid-cavitary obstruction, where the walls actually hit. And we've been seeing more of that. The other thing that we, we see a fair amount of, at least at our institution, is we're seeing a fair number of mitral valve abnormalities. And we even have some patients where we don't remove the muscle and the only thing we do is repair the mitral valve. Now that's, you know, we, when about 20% of our cases have something done to the mitral valve. Um, some will have a myectomy and uh, something done to the mitral leaflet. Sometimes they have to be shortened Sometimes the papillary muscles and the, the, the strings that attach the papillary muscles to the mitral valve need to be repaired. So the whole mitral, the mitral, what we call the mitral apparatus, which is the leaflets, the papillary muscles, and the, the, the string-like structures that, that attach the papillary muscle to the leaflets need to be worked on. So when we're taking somebody to surgery, we need to know all of that before we go to the operating room. And sometimes the echocardiogram itself is enough to tell us that. There are times when we have to do a transesophageal echocardiogram before we go to the operating room. And clearly uh, 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 the um, transesophageal echocardiogram is done during the surgery so that we know exactly, again, the pictures are taken again. We, ver we verify everything. We make then the surgery is done, whatever it needs to be done is done. And then once that's finished, then we go back, we restart the heart and take another look with the transesophageal echo to make sure that things are okay. So that's it. Um, what, I, what else can you do during a myectomy? What other problems can you correct while you're in the heart? Uh, what well, can we do for atrial fibrillation? What can we do for coronary well, artery disease? Well, one of the mo more, most important things is we've got to make sure about the coronary arteries. If there's coronary artery disease, then we repair the coronary arteries. If the patient's been having atrial fibrillation, there are procedures that we can take due to the, due to the left atrium to, and even the right atrium to make them smaller, try to, try to shrink the... Uh, uh, the atrium. We also, uh, at, because of the fact that the patient has had atrial fibrillation, they may be at risk for having more atrial fibrillation, and we don't want them to have a stroke. So we take the, what we call the left atrial appendage, which is a little sac that's attached to the left atrium, and we close it off or tie it off. So that's done also. And if... Um, so we need to know, you need to know all of those things. The other thing to mention is, let's suppose a patient um, has started having atrial fibrillation. They've got outflow tract obstruction. They've been starting to have atrial fibrillation. That, the fact that they're having atrial fibrillation will push us to do surgery more quickly than if they weren't having atrial fibrillation. And that to me has become a new, newer indication for surgery. That is if the patient is having problems with atrial fibrillation. Uh, we don't want that to continue because it, as that's a sign that the heart is under stress 
and we don't want to allow that the upper chambers of the heart to dilate more because of the atrial fibrillation. So we'll do something to the left atrium, you know, if there's something going on there. In children, can you do a biopsy? Yep, it's it's done. There's no, yeah, it doesn't, you know, well, can be done. Is there an age limit? How young can you go? Oh, I don't know. It's hard. That's something I haven't thought much about. But I mean, we've we've done we've, the pediatric guys have done them, and you know, two years old, one year old, two years old. It's not, you know. But usually, if it's that young, that muscle's for relatively speaking is very thick for that that heart. It's a really thick heart. It's not, you know, so. It's rare. Yeah, yeah it's not, 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 not very common. It's not very common, but I've spoken to Usually, and the other, thing to, the other thing to know is that during puberty, is if the heart's going to increase, that's the time when it really starts to happen. And so as, as, we're, as we're going through the teenage years, we can see that heart really accelerate in size. So we have a question that I know we cannot answer. So we're gonna figure out how we can help this person get to the answer. Somebody had an alcohol ablation in March of 2020, and then a myectomy in November of 2020, and they report they're not feeling well. So what would you do with somebody like this who came to clinic and said, I tried both and I still feel terrible? Well, we need to know what's wrong. Because what may have happened is the, something wasn't done right. You know, we need to know exactly what the anatomy is now, and see is there still outflow tract obstruction. That's that's the key to to, to knowing what what to do. In the event that the obstruction is resolved, but now the heart has gotten stiff, and it is turning into a restrictive state. That is would be a little unusual that close to the procedure. I would agree okay. it's unusual, but this is the HCMA and we see unusual yeah. things here. Um, so it can happen, right? It, the, the heart can just get too stiff and be non-compliant. Well, if, if you've had two procedures, again, the most likely possibility was they weren't done right. But if, they, if it is stiff, then you're left with using medications. And uh, 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 there isn't this new Mevacampton that's coming, uh, that's being studied right now. Uh, it's, not, it's not on the market, so it's not 100% easy to get. And every, you sort of have to follow, you know, you sort of have to have the right. Uh, you need to be in a clinical trial. Right, you gotta be in a clinical trial to, to do that. But I think that if, if all else had, fa had failed, well, then it's something you, you get permission to do. You know, keep, and you get them in the get them in the trial if that's the case. I mean, the other thing that you got to consider is there are other diseases that look like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and maybe it wasn't looked for, like amyloidosis or uh, you know, uh, some other other types of diseases where the muscle is thick and it it's myectomy doesn't really work for those, but usually we know that before we go to the operating. So I would encourage our listener to, you know, give us a call in the office. We'll help you go over records and come up with a plan of action and maybe bring some other experts to the table. Even experts get stumped sometimes and, you know, they need help from their colleagues. So if you're at a center of excellence, um, maybe there's some other people we can bring to the table to help them evaluate your situation and to really work on getting you to have the best quality of life possible. So I think that's critically important that you don't give up. There are other options out there. Even if the end of the game is it's time for, you know, advanced heart failure therapies, including transplant. I'm a living example that it can work quite well if that's really where you need to go. So uh, don't give up hope yet. We're here to help you through the process. If anybody else has questions, they're welcome to um, post them now. 
and we will get to them. Um, I have to kind of keep bouncing in and out. Zoom has not figured that one out yet, how to work Facebook questions through the Zoom thing. So Lisa works with her cell phone and the computer simultaneously. So, um, okay, we have a couple of questions here. Um, oh, we got a bunch of questions here. Grandson has non-obstructed uh, HCM with a septal measurement of 37. He's 15. Um, so non-obstructed, we're going to treat with medication. Myectomy or septal uh, alcohol septal ablation are not options for treatment at this time. There are some new clinical trials coming. All clinical trials start with adults. So it's going to be a bit of a path until we have new medications for children. How, how, like, old, is it, how old is the child? 15. Uh, it, would all, it would still be helpful to know exactly what the echo looked like on the chance that there was mid-cavitary obstruction. And there are a few cases, if the cavity is very small, that they would feel better if we gave them a, a little larger cavity. So you, even with, in rare, this is very rare, but it could happen that if you, we feel that you need a little bigger cavity size, we still might do a myectomy, but we have to look at it very carefully and really make sure that there is no obstruction. Okay. And for those who are asking comments, I'm using the like feature so I can know that I've already addressed your question. Um, doesn't mean I like that you're not feeling well. Please don't take it the wrong way. So we have an interesting question from Denny. Um, and the way you worded your question, Denny, makes me a little concerned. Um, what is the criteria for heart transplant in IHSS? First of all, the term IHSS stands for idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. Those of us who've been diagnosed for a long time, that was our original diagnosis. That term hasn't been used really since the 1980s. We don't use that term because it's not idiopathic. We know that they're genetic causes. The hypertrophy can be in various places and it's not always in the subaortic region. So my first concern would be, who are you seeing that's still calling it IHSS? Um, and transplant is reserved for those with um, very specific criteria. They're written by UNOS, which is the federal organization monitoring organ procurement and allocation. And uh, the HCMA actually helped UNOS write those guidelines and we can make those available to you in detail, but we will just say that you can't be obstructed and go straight to transplant. You have to get rid of the obstruction first. Um, you can't just be symptomatic. The heart has to be truly failing. And there are features that are looked at such as cardiac output and cardiac index that help determine whether it's something that we are needing to consider. And your uh, exercise tolerance is monitored and it has to be below a certain threshold to be considered for listing. So you have to be sick enough, but well enough. So you can't be completely deteriorated in heart failure with kidney failure and lung problems and everything else. It's, it's a very tricky balance. And Denny, I would encourage you to call the office and we can go over the details with you if you'd like to discuss that further. Uh, another question. HOCM to HCM, what could have happened? So I'm going to try to interpret this. And uh, Koki, I think is the way you pronounce your name. If we, if I've gotten this wrong, please post. Um, so you were obstructed one day, you're not obstructed the next. Are you cured? What might've happened, Harry? I, I, that, that's hard to, hard to say. You know, it, 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 the obstruction just doesn't go away quickly. I mean, it's, that's, I, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to, how to answer that. Are gradient They can be, we are, I mean, depending on your, your fluid status, if you get really dehydrated, it's a hot day, you don't drink any fluids, the cavity gets smaller, you can get obstruction. That's the one way that it can happen acutely. Uh, but it's it but that that's that's something that come that can come and go quickly that's that has to do with just the fluid balance that day but it's rare that you will suddenly go from obstructed to non-obstructive and it doesn't go back to uh, obstructed it, it just you know that that 
that doesn't happen. This is more, more what we say transient. That is, it's again, how much have you had to drink? And uh, the other thing you gotta be aware of is alcohol. You don't wanna be drinking alcohol because that can adjust the fluid balance acutely. And uh, uh, it, 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 it can, alcohol can cause rhythm disturbances like atrial fibrillation and things like that. So, um, but you know, and, and then of course, people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you gotta be careful. Some people think they might need diuretics and if you take too much of a diuretic, the cavity will shrink because the fluids go down and you can get acute obstruction. So you have to, you gotta be aware of that. So I would say one of the other ways that you can see obstructive HCM moving into HCM without obstruction is if the ventricle starts to dilate and it opens up more and there's more room, but that is not a good indication because that could indicate that you're moving into end stage or burnt out HCM or advanced heart failure HCM. So you would want to look very closely and monitor that uh, and see what changes have happened in your ejection fraction and what has happened to the gradient. Um, this is why HCM Center of Excellence Care is critically important because these are very tricky things to figure out sometimes. It, HCM is definitely not a black and white situation. It's about a billion shades of gray. So um, we would encourage you to get to a center if you haven't been to one already. And in the modern age, we can do telemedicine visits if one is not convenient to you. There are a number of centers that offer telemedicine appointments. Um, obviously they can't do an echo that way, but they can get the images from your local physician and look at that. Um, okay, so your Susan, your grandson is being treated, however, um, does not have any medicine at this time, even though they have a very thick septum. Um, a 15-year-old with a 37 millimeter uh, uh, septal wall thickness, uh, Harry, what would be the treatment you would say for somebody with massive hypertrophy? Well, I think you'd, still, you'd want to make sure there wasn't some other underlying disease. So genetic testing. Yeah. And, and defibrillator you know, and, implantation. And, well, and sometimes we'll do a do the MRI scan to see what things look like, and uh, on relatively rare occasions, we'll even do a biopsy of the heart just to make sure we're not missing something. So, so you know, but when it's thirty, I mean, it's got to be very when it's thirty-seven millimeters, it's got to be very carefully looked. And, so, and see what what else is going on. I mean, that's. I mean, it can, it certainly can happen that it's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and, and you know, that it can be, but uh, we would, you know, if let's say it's, we've got to say it's 37 and there's no mid cavitary obstruction or anything like that. I'd still use a beta blocker to start with and, and see how, how they feel. I mean, that's, that's easy enough to do. Okay. Let's see what happens. So one thing I, I feel I have to bring up is massive hypertrophy is definitely a high risk feature for sudden cardiac arrest. And right. the guidelines are very clear that that is a class one indication for an implantable defibrillator. So if that has not been discussed, that is something that should be discussed with the care team. Um, sometimes when they're younger, they're trying to wait for growth to occur so that the body can fit the device better. But it is definitely a conversation that needs to be had. Um, I've seen too many of those very, very thick hearts get missed because the kids look okay, um, but they are still at risk. So please have that conversation. That's why the, but that's why the MRI scan is important also because it can give us an idea of how much scar there is. And you, quite frequently when the heart is very thick, there will be a lot of scar and that would push you to doing the defibrillator. Okay. Sarah, I haven't seen your name in a while. Hi, how you doing? Um, you were diagnosed 12 years ago and the symptoms are progressing. Listen and watch carefully to recommendations and criteria. It seems that criteria have increased taking into account more for symptoms. Okay, she's got a long question here. For example, you just mentioned AFib frequency. Is that taken into account for myectomy? And could you comment on the experience of how the criteria has changed over time and what are the current criteria? 
So the new guidelines have actually lowered the threshold for invasive therapies to address obstruction. It used to be really based on the numbers that the gradient had to be over 50. You had to be intolerant of medication. And that's the only people who were even offered myectomy. And now there's like a line in the guidelines that say, you know, patients may choose not to be on medication and may want to go to surgery sooner and they should be permitted to do so. So I think we've gotten a little bit more liberal there so that the patient can help make that decision in, in the process of shared decision-making with their physician as to when they want to go to surgery. Would you agree with that, Harry? Well, I still feel, even, even with septal myectomy, that we still tend to use medication to keep the heart rate slower. So I'm, I'm not one of the ones that would say, well, you've had a myectomy, you don't need any medicine. I still use some. I, I might reduce the dose, but I still tend to use it. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you for the nice comment. I hope you're well. Um, and your grandson's normal. Okay. Um, I have had a stress echo done. AFib is there, however, no gradient. So we're talking about a different anatomy. If the stress echo is not showing a gradient, there's two things that could be going on there. Number one, the team that you're with may not know how to provoke that gradient and capture that information. I've had many people go over to the Cleveland Clinic being told they're non-obstructed and Harry and his team will put them on a stress test and find obstruction when others did not. Uh, so it happens uh, sometimes, um, but we don't do myectomies only for atrial fibrillation. Harry, can you talk for a minute about generalized treatments for atrial fibrillation beyond medication and not myectomy and maze? So well, well, well the, we, we sometimes use the catheter to uh, do an ablation. Uh, we go down the pulmonary veins and with a catheter and, and try to put little burns and stop that from happening. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, we can, we can, uh, we, we do a fair number of these days. It's not a hundred percent. Some people still have the problem of atrial fibrillation, but it becomes harder to, to stop the atrial fibrillation when the left atrium gets larger. And that's why we try to intervene sooner nowadays with septal myectomy uh, if they have obstruction and they're having atrial fibrillation so that we don't let that heart get too, the left, the atrial, the right and left atrium to get too large. That, because that's, that, that once it gets large, it's really hard to stop the atrial hard to stop the atrial fibrillation. So keeping numbers is critically important in HCM. Knowing what your outflow tract gradient is, knowing what your left atrial dimension or volume is, these are numbers that you can keep track of. And I should have brought one with me, but I don't have it. We have a new membership benefit at BHCMA. Um, I will bring it on the 230 podcast so you can see it. We've created a very nice little journal for you to keep track of your numbers, keep track of your symptoms, bring it with you to the physician's office when you go so that you can have discussions based on your, your anatomy at that visit at that time. And you can kind of keep track of progression and see where things are going so that you're not surprised. Surprises are not good when it comes to your cardiac care. We want to kind of know where we're going and get an idea of what might happen next so that we can prepare ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, our family. We want to be ready for what we're going to have to do next because we know there is no cure for HCM today and we need to keep on top of that. I'm going to go back to our friend who called it IHSS. So I too was diagnosed with IHSS. I just worry that if your physician's still using that term, they may be a little outdated. But you're, you said your B. MP, which I believe you mean BNP, is over 1,300 right now. This is a concerning number, and I would encourage you to have a conversation with your team about why your BNP is so high. It's a sign of heart failure. The, the heart muscle is struggling, and it releases this protein into the body that tells you that the heart is struggling. Um, so a BNP of 1,300 is pretty high, but some patients with HCM have very high resting BNPs. And you can't just determine what's going on with you based on solely a BNP. 
because your BNP may have been at this level for many, many years, and that may be normal for you. It is a little high for a normal. We tend to see them in the four or 500 range. So I would encourage you to have a conversation with your doctor about that. Um, um, Harry, you're getting a question uh, about who is seeing patients at the Cleveland Clinic right now that you are in mostly retirement mode. Um, how, how do people get seen at the Cleveland Clinic and who's taking care of them? Well, doc, uh, Dr. Desai and Dr. Thamel Arison, Dr. Emery are mainly seeing them. And you've taught them well, haven't you? I hope so. I think so. I think so. So Mark, there's your answer there. Since symptom myectomy, I have a left bundle branch block. I was told not to worry about it. Can you talk about the significance of a left bundle branch block post myectomy? That's very common. That, uh, that's a very common occurrence. Uh, most everybody that has had surgery will have a left bundle branch block when they come when they leave the operating room. So, but if you start it again with a right bundle and you get the left bundle, you're going to need a permanent pacemaker. The need that that the percentage of patients that need permanent pacemakers after septomyectomy is about three percent. It's not that high. Yeah. But if you start out with a right bundle, it's a hundred percent. Then need the permanent pacemaker. Okay, Kobe, uh, um, I'm not sure what term you're talking about. It says IVC dilation is there. IVC. I'm not that's sure what you're referring to. An inferior vena cava. That's the oh. okay. structure uh, that, 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 that comes out of the heart and goes down to the legs. Um, what would be the significance of dilation? Uh, that's that. I'm not I, that can happen in patients, but it's not directly related to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. True, true, and unrelated. It can happen in the human experience, I guess, is what we're saying. Um, and it doesn't have a correlation necessarily to HCM. Okay, we've had some really great questions here today. I'm going to pop back out. I have to keep going out and into the questions and scrolling to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, okay, okay, we got all of these questions answered. Okay, so Susan has reported that her grandson got an ICD on September 1st. I'm very happy to hear that. Um, I'm glad that he is protected um, with his ICD now. And we hope that he has a very boring disease course with HCM. Um, thoughts on ADT therapy for prostate cancer in individuals with HCM? Pedro, I don't know that we can answer that. Um, I... I am not aware of any, I've not heard of any contraindications of any cancer treatments specifically for prostate cancer in HCM. I can take a look at some data and see if we can find anything there, but I don't think that that would be um, a major issue. Um, Diane, you're welcome. I hope you're enjoying Spain. I'm enjoying your pictures on Facebook. <laughs> okay. Well, it looks like we've answered all of our questions today and we're concluding the hour. And I know Dr. Lever has a mentorship uh, appointment with one of our newer centers of excellence um, at, at 12 o'clock. So I wanna let him have a little time to go get a drink and uh, relax for five minutes before he goes down to his next meeting. So uh, Harry, um, I guess we're gonna wrap up this episode of Tales from the Heart with, again, I'm just gonna give a couple closing announcements. Um, well, before I go to closing announcements, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share about Septal reduction therapy. Me? You, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we've pretty much covered it. Okay. So again, at 2.30 today, I will be back here in the Facebook room um, doing a podcast with Fatty Malik, Dr. Fatty Malik from Cytokinetics. We will be discussing the results of the Redwood HCM clinical trial in a myosin inhibitor that has now been named Afficampton. So we have Mavicampton and Afficampton. Get used to these words, people. We're going to be hearing a lot of them. Um, I also want to remind you that the summit is open for registration, uh, which is the HCM Summit, which is a physician education two and a half day program uh, that will be taking place in mid-October over a weekend. If you sign up, you are um, 
you will have access to all the content for about six months. Um, and then um, you'll also be able to see a HCMA Saturday night programming where you may see some familiar faces. Uh, we're gonna be talking a lot about patient advocacy and things that we're working on here at the HCMA. And I hope you join us there. Um, I'm very happy to announce that our legislative initiatives are about to launch. And in those legislative initiatives, we are seeking to improve the well-child examination process in all states, this is state level advocacy, where we wanna make sure that every family has an opportunity to have a discussion with their child's pediatrician about family heart risks, not only HCM. So if you are um, interested in participating in changing the law and improving education to physicians who do these screenings, we encourage you to join our legislative training. So we were gonna show you how to use all of our new tools. We're very happy about the way that this is developing. And I'm really proud to tell you that we've had conversations with the American Heart Association who have now, um, it's a very tricky language and I have to be careful so I don't go to heart jail. Um, they support the HCMA bringing this initiative forward. They will not be driving it because it's not on their, on, on their horizon, uh, but they will support us at the state level. Uh, so we're happy to hear about that. And I wanna take a moment and let you all know that the HCMA is now in formal partnerships with both the American Heart Association on some educational initiatives and the American College of Cardiology where we will be working on some um, medical education programming to ensure that physicians worldwide get a better education on HCM. And the last announcement of the day is in the next couple of weeks, we are going to be launching a massive initiative. It's called HCM Academy. And it is a partnership with a company that we're working with that does medical education. They're out of the UK. It is funded by all of the players that support the HCMA every day, Cytokinetics, Bristol-Myers Squibb, um, Rocket Pharmaceutical, uh, Sanofi, and others. And I am on the faculty, as well as Marty Marin, Anjali Owen, and John Lynn Jeffries. And, and where me. We well, you're a teacher. I'm the faculty in the, on the high level, and we've recruited amazing physicians from around the country to be our physician educators. Dr. Harry Level will be one of those physician educators, and we will be running classes for physicians. And guess what? We have found an innovative way for you guys to get involved. You know how frustrated you are because your local cardiologist or your GP doesn't understand HCM? In a couple of days, we're going to launch a form on the website where you can refer your physician. You can choose to make it an anonymous referral, or you can use your name in the referral. And we will invite your local doctors to join us for HCM Academy. They will get CME credits. It is a free course to them. They're going to get a very deep knowledge and understanding through this program on what HCM is and how to better understand you. GPs, emergency room docs, local cardiologists, if you guys collect the names, addresses, and hopefully emails and phone numbers, we will invite them to these programs. We're also gonna create little drop cards that you can uh, bring to your doctor's office that'll have a QR code that you can hand to your doctor and say, here's the information on how to register for the course. We're making it easy for you to bring them into the circle. And hopefully in the next one to two years, we will have a better network of healthcare providers who truly understand the unique features of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and how best to serve you and your families. So it's been a really long road to get this program running and I'm really happy that we're about to launch it. So uh, please join us, visit 4hcm.org uh, in the coming days for more information. I am done here. So Harry, thanks for joining us again on Tales from the Heart and thank you to all of our sponsors and our staff and our, our volunteers and our board. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4hcmwarriors. That's the number 4hcmwarriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org.
For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website, 4hcm.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.